0: tonight we're gonna begin a three-part series through the book of Esther so if you would turn there Esther chapter one Esther chapter one and this is a book right before Job, and this is a a book that is very very unique for a couple of different reasons the first one is that throughout the entire book there is not a single mention of the name of God. There's not a single mention of the name of God, there's not a single mention of of them praying before the Lord, of them seeking the Lord's face, and yet you can clearly see throughout the entire book just the order of things, the way that God had preordained all of these events to take place, and we're gonna talk about a few of those things tonight, but just the way that God was at work even though the people had their eyes closed to what he was doing. And I think that that's such a a great picture for us, because so many times we fail to see the way that God is at work, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those around us, and even in the lives of non-believers. As we go through the Book of Esther, we're going to see that, that that God was working not just in the children of Israel, but He was working in non-believers, people that didn't even know God, but the way that God had ordained all of the events to come and to fit together in such a way, that he works out all things together for good to those who trust in him and are called by his name and to me that is such a beautiful beautiful picture but we're going to go ahead and read through the first few verses here and then we'll pray and then we'll just dive right in but esther chapter one beginning of verse one it says now it came to pass in the days of ahasuerus this was ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from india to ethiopia in those days when king ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small. In the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again tonight to worship you in the study of your word. We pray that you would anoint us with your wisdom, with your Holy Spirit, that you would lead us and guide us to learn the lessons that you desire to teach. Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds from the enemy, that you would bring us past all the distractions of this evening, of this day, of this life, and that you would order all of the things that are supposed to take place. Lord, that you would give me your words to speak and not my own, and Lord, that we would all be attuned to you. And so we give you this time and all that we are, we ask and pray all of this. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So this is a very very interesting time in history many people have seen the movie 300 and 300 the rise of an empire and many people have heard about the battle at thermopylae and and how the the media persian empire met the greeks and there was this tremendous battle and it had lasting impacts throughout history i mean this was just a a tremendous battle this was the largest army that had ever been mustered and and taken into into a battle, into a a place at one time up to this point and that particular king, the the leader, the ruler of the Medes and the Persians was this very man, Ahasuerus. And so where we find this right here is actually just before. Chapter 1 takes place just before all of those things leading up to that invasion. So Ahasuerus is this king, his father Darius. Darius of the Medes and the Persians had gone and he had tried to conquer the Greeks and he had failed miserably. And so he had passed away before he had had a chance to go back and to exact revenge. And so that was one of the first things that Ahasuerus had done. We, we see him as Ahasuerus here. Most commonly he's referred to as Xerxes. But Xerxes, this was one of the first things that he desired to do. He had brought a, a semi-relative peace to his lands and so he desired to go and to avenge his father's defeat against the Greeks and so so he's preparing for that and one of the best ways to prepare for that was to create alliances was to get all these people on his side and so that's what he's doing here it says that he reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia and that all of these people were invited the rulers of all of these places were invited It says, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all of his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. For six months, for half of a year, he had this just all-out bash. They had this huge party, and he invited all of the rulers, all the nobles, everybody who was worth anything to come from all across the entire kingdom, all of the places that they had conquered, they're all invited to come and just to enjoy the riches of his glorious splendor. I mean, this is, on the one hand, this is just a, an amazing thing because you think about the cost of this, you think about just the, the splendor, the, the extravagance of all of these things, but also just the, the vanity of all of these things that he had the ability to have all of this stuff but he it wasn't enough just that he had been blessed with this stuff he had to show it to everybody else and so that was the reason that that he brought all of these people in so for 180 days he brings them in and they do all of these these things they they just have a party so that they can see why it is that they are following after him why it is that they're going to go into this battle why it is that they need to to align with him why it is that they need to give him troops and do all of these things and so for 180 days this is what happens and then it says in verse 5 that when these days were completed then the king made another feast lasting seven days for all the people that were present in the capital so they had gone through six months of this huge party and then at the end of the six months then they have a seven-day feast uh, just another party in the the royal gardens and during the seven days, this was open to not just the people that had been invited for these past six months, but also to everyone in the capital, that all of these people were brought in. And then it begins to go through and it describes just some of the extravagance, some of the beauty of what was taking place here. It says there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. I mean, it's just the colors, the, the linen itself, the cloth that it was made of, this was not cheap. This was expensive stuff and it was very, very fine stuff. And so he's showing it off. And then it says the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise and white and black marble. So the floors of this garden were marble of all of these different colors. But not only that, the couches themselves were not made of wood or steel or clay or any of these other things. They were made of gold and silver. And, and we see that this is historical. You know, we, those of us here, we know that the Bible's historical. But even the world has come to find out that these, these things actually took place. You know, they have uncovered some of these artifacts where they had couches that were literally made of gold. I mean, talk about waste. You talk about the extravagance. And yet, at the same time, it reminds me that, you know, this guy just extremely wealthy. Obviously, you know, for 180 days, he brings all these people together and they do all this stuff. And he shows off all the glories of his kingdom. And they they have enough gold to even make couches. And yet in comparison to that for all of eternity, God uses that same gold that, that, you know, was extravagant just to be able to make couches. And God uses it to pave the roads of heaven. I mean, how glorious is that? What an amazing picture that is, just to, to kind of keep in our minds that even this was completely extravagant for even nowadays. Even nowadays, if you were to show up at somebody's house and you saw a single couch made of gold or silver, I mean, that would be a mind-blowing thing. I mean, that, that is rich. And yet God uses that very same gold as if it's nothing, because it is nothing to God. That's how great and awesome our God is. But, but he goes through and he's doing all these things. And then the next thing in verse 7, it says, They serve drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. As I was listening to different Bible studies and going through commentaries, one of the things that, that they talked about is that the historians have found that not only did they have all of these different vessels to drink out of, but what would happen is during these just extravagant feasts, they would drink out of the cup once and then it would go into basically like a trash heap where they would melt it down and they would make a new cup out of it. That they never drink out of the same cup twice. I mean this is just insane, the, the waste and the extravagance that they had here. But, but they go through and they do all these things and then in verse 8 it says, In accordance with the law the drinking was not compulsory For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. And so according to the law, no one was forced to drink. So there were people, I'm sure not not a whole lot of people, but there were people that came and they just enjoyed the festivities and they, they didn't partake in the alcohol. But everybody else was free to partake as much as they wanted. So you could just be completely drunk off your rocker or you could be completely just teetotaling it and anywhere in between, and it didn't matter. Nobody was judged for anything, but everyone was free. It was a free party. You know, that's one of the things just, it was free. Like all the stuff that they had, it was free. You just showed up if you were invited and all of this was free. And so that kind of sets the stage for what's about to happen. There, this has been a six month party culminating in a seven day party. And then we get to verse nine. It says, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehrman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigda, Abiktha, Zithar, and Karkas, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. And so, again, six months, now this is the seventh day. This is the very end of the feast. This is the last day. We, we know, again, from the historians that the Xerxes really enjoyed his wine. He really enjoyed his women. And what we have here is at the end of just this complete bash. Now, it's at the very, very end. He's drunk, and he calls for Vashti. And he calls for Vashti to come out so that everyone can see her. And this is not, you know... If you read through the between the lines there, it says in verse 9 that Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So that means that where Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, is calling her to come out and to show herself and to show her off, this is just a room full of men. Now, just the improprieties of all the the different things that could happen. We don't know exactly what this was going to entail. We don't know if it was just to come in and to, to take the veil off of her face so that they could see her. We don't know exactly, but whatever it was, we do know that it was improper. That there was a great deal of impropriety in what was taking place here, but the king had lost all all sense of reason and decorum at this point in time and so he calls for her and he sends the eunuchs and the eunuchs go to Queen Vashti and they tell her that the the king has desired for her to come. But in verse 12 it says, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs and therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. The king was furious. And one of the things that, that you start to notice is that God had a plan for all of these things. God had a plan for all of these things. We're going to be going through three chapters tonight, and you start to see through these three chapters all of the different ways that God's hand was at work, even though the people that God was working in and through didn't even have a recognition of God. But this very first thing is that Vashti declines to go to the king. Now this king, this was just a a tremendously brutal king. Xerxes, it says, ruled from 486 to 465 BC. He was also known as Xerxes the Great, and he was the king of the Persian Empire. He was celebrated for many building projects throughout his empire, but he's best known in both ancient and modern sources for the massive expedition that he mounted against Greece in 480 BC, which, according to Herodotus, assembled the largest and most well-equipped fighting force ever put into the field up to that point. So Darius, we talked a little bit about his father. Darius had gone and he tried to to conquer the Greeks. He had lost at the Battle of Marathon in 490 B.C. And so now as Xerxes takes over the throne, he feels like he needs to go and avenge. And so he spent four years amassing troops and supplies and weapons for the campaign and conscripting or bringing into service as many men as he could from all the various regions that they had conquered. And this, where we read here, this was kind of the culmination. This was like the, the send-off to this military. So they're, they're doing all these things. And so it took four years to gather enough stuff for this. But just to give you an idea of how brutal this man was, there's a story told by the historian Herodotus. He tells the story of Pythias the Lydian, a descendant of a king whose five sons were among those conscripted. Pythias hosted the king and his army lavishly at Sardis in the winter of 481 to 480 BC. And he offered to give Xerxes a considerable sum of money for the campaign. But Xerxes refused his, refused his offer and instead rewarded Pythias for his generosity by adding greatly to his treasury. And so this is a, a man of royalty, this man Pythias. And so Pythias brings the king and his army to, to stay in his place in Sardis, in in this city, and so then he tells Xerxes that he's going to help pay for this military campaign, and Xerxes is so enamored with this man, just can't believe that that he would offer to do this, that he not only refuses his money, but he pays him for offering to pay. I mean, that's kind of a cool deal, like, you know, it's like going to lunch with somebody, and you offer to pay the bill, and they say, no, 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 don't worry about it, and by the way, here's a hundred dollar bill. I'll pay for lunch and here's a hundred dollar bill. Like who does that kind of stuff, right? But this is a king who, you know, extravagance was, that was just who he was. So prior to Xerxes' departure for this, there's this bad omen that takes place. It's the form, it takes the form of an eclipse appearing in the sky and Xerxes doesn't pay attention to it. Xerxes says, whatever. But Pythias, this man who had offered to pay and all of these things, he sees this as a bad sign And so he comes, and he talks to Xerxes, and he tells him, Xerxes, I have five sons. And all I would ask, it's a small thing for you, but it's a big thing for me. All I would ask is that as I send my other four sons, that you would spare my oldest son from this battle. That you would leave my oldest son so that he would be able to carry on for me in my old age, that he would be able to take care of my affairs, to continue on with the family business, to do all of these things, to carry on as heir. And so Xerxes, hearing this, becomes enraged at the request, as it meant that Pythias doubted his chances of success. So he had this eldest son removed from the ranks, he cut him in half, and he placed the two sections of this man's corpse on either side of the road, and he marched his troops in between them. I mean, this is a guy that he had just paid this man for his generosity and then he turned around and as this man asks him for this one small thing, he, he turns around and he cuts his oldest son in half and uses him as an example. I mean, this was, this was the king that we're talking about. This was the, the kind of temper that he had. You know, there's another story, just real briefly, where they're talking about going across this place at the helipont and they have to cross this, this body of water and so the, the Phoenicians and the Egyptians are doing all these things to, to go across the water. They finally build this bridge. They have all these ropes and super, super heavy ropes tied up. And, and they've, they've literally just finished this bridge. And they're about to cross. And then this huge storm comes, and it rips up the whole bridge. So Xerxes sends men from his camp to go and do two things. One, to show his brutality and two, just to show just where he was at mentally. The first thing is that they were to behead everybody who was in charge of building the bridge. So, I mean, it it wasn't their fault. You know, this great storm comes and, and it wipes out the bridge, but he sends them to be beheaded. And then the second thing that these guys were supposed to do is they were to take whips and they were to administer 300 lashes to the water to the water okay they just think about that they were rebuking the water okay he thinks he's a god he's rebuking the water and they were told to say phrases to the water saying that we we're gonna cross you whether you like it or not you know how dare you defy the king you know he's a god and and they're whipping the water this man was not entirely there okay so so this is the the man that we're talking about and so you have just a little brief insight into where this guy's head was at and that was when he was sober. This guy's drunk and he's calling for Vashti and Vashti refuses. So think about all the consequences, all the different things that could happen. And so it says that his anger burned within him in verse 12. And then in verse 13, it says, Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew law and justice, those close to him being Karshana, Shithar, Edmatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsana, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? And so these were the men that, out of the entire kingdom, these were the only men that were allowed to come and, and really just to, to speak openly with the king. And so he comes to them and he asks him, what shall be done because of this? And Memucan, in verse 16, answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report. King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. So of all the things to worry about, of all the ways that this could have been a problem, Memucan speaks up and he says, look, if we don't do something, king, my wife is going to rebel. Like, seriously, of all the different things that he could have gone through these guys' minds, of all the different ways that this situation could have and needed to be handled for whatever reason, this was the one that actually led to to an action being taken is, I'm afraid of what my wife might do. I'm afraid of what my wife might do. And it's an interesting thing, and it, it kind of makes it a little bit more clear when you understand that Xerxes was very similar to King Saul of the... the the children of Israel in that this man was more handsome than basically all of the kingdom this man was taller stronger you know, smarter this guy was a man's man and so what they're saying is look if the Queen can't respect you know the ideal of what a man is supposed to be in in our eyes then what hope is there for the rest of us and so out of this, this drunken stupor that they're all in, because this is again, this is not, let's you know, take a break, let's come back and let's discuss this tomorrow. This is in the midst of the anger and in the midst of the drunken stupor, they, they're making decisions. And just an interesting side note, one of the things that that multiple historians have commented on is that that's the way they made most of their decisions, militarily and, and in a government sense, is it the, the kings and the rulers of the Medes and the Persians they would get drunk first, and they would make a decision. And there are actually recorded instances of where they made a decision, but they felt like they had not drunk enough. They went back and partied harder, and then they came back to re-vote on the decision. Like, it's just an interesting way to do things. <laughs> very, very different, but it's just an interesting way to do things. But so they go through, and so they, they have to do something. And so Mimikan in verse 19 says... If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give a royal position to another who is better than she. And when the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. And then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people." And so they make this law. And this law goes into effect, and it's the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed and it cannot be altered. So one of the things that was very unique about this particular kingdom and and the whole reign that they had is that once it was decreed and signed into law, no one, not even another ruler, not even the same ruler, could revoke that law. Once it was a law, it was a law. Now you could um, add to it, you could amend the law, but you couldn't repeal the law. So once it went out, it was... It was literally written in stone. There was nothing that you could do about it. And so they make this law. But one of the takeaways from chapter 1 is that God was already working in Vashti and in Xerxes. And he was working through a man named Memucan, who was afraid of his wife. God was doing all of these things. He was setting everything into motion. Everything that would have to take place to spare the children of Israel, he was setting into motion in Three people that didn't know him. Three people that didn't recognize him as their God. Three people that could care less who God thought he was. And yet God was still in control. We talk about that a lot. We, we pray about that. We teach about that. We talk about that a lot in, in times of hardship and pain. In times of trial and temptation. That, you know, God is still God. God is still on the throne. And yes, he is. But he's always that. He's always in control. He is always the one that has allowed or set into motion the events that are taking place in order to work for his greater grand purpose. Something that we oftentimes don't see until well after the fact. And that's what was taking place here. Vashti stood uh, for whatever reason. You know, we don't know. We don't know if it was because she was making a moral stand. We don't know if she was trying to spite him. We don't know if she just felt that he was drunk. We don't know anything about her decision except that she made the decision and that there were consequences for that decision. But whatever the reason was, God had already ordained all of these events to take place. And they were all working according to his grand design. And so we get to chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus had subsided, that he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. And so when it says, after these things, it was not just the events of chapter one. This was also after the military campaign that you you read about, you hear about, that that the, the movies about 300 were created. This is after that three or four year time span where that battle has taken place He's already had this great victory, but he's also had this great defeat. And it wiped out his navy so bad that he had to retreat back to his own country, back to his own kingdom. And so that's where we find verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus had subsided, that he remembered Vashti. He remembered Vashti and what she had done. And another way to think about that is that he came back and he, he was despondent. He would come back from what should have been a victory and that had turned into probably one of the greatest defeats of his military career and so he's despondent and he's looking for comfort and he comes back to find his queen and then he remembers what has happened. He remembers what has happened and what has been decreed against her and so the king's servants in verse 2 who attended him said let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Hegai the king's eunuch custodian of the women and let beauty preparations be given them then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti and this thing pleased the king and he did so and so the king comes back, and he's looking for comfort in all the wrong places. But he's looking for comfort, and so the, the attendants to him, his servants, come and they tell him, look, we've got a great idea. You've got this huge kingdom. Let all of the, the most beautiful women come for what's literally an effective beauty pageant. Let them come for this beauty pageant. Let them be prepared for a year. And then whichever one wins the, the heart of the king, it's actually not even like a beauty pageant. It's more like The Bachelor. It was the bachelor of the Persian, Mead style. And, and so they bring all of these women, and some of them, you know, the historians tell us, some of them went willingly. This was a great thing, and, you know, it, it elevated their status. But many of them, they were forced. They went against their will. Because as we're going to see, if you were not chosen to win this lottery, they, I mean, it was just a very, very different life. It's a very, very different life. But this thing pleased the king, and so he says, let's go ahead and do this. And so in verse 5, in Shushan the Citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, The young woman was lovely and beautiful, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Hegai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. And then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. And then in verse 10, it says, Esther had not revealed her people or her family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. And so there's a couple of things here. The first one is that Mordecai is not a Jewish name. Mordecai is not a Hebrew name. Mordecai is not a name that they, anybody else would have looked at and said, this guy must be a Jew. Mordecai was actually a Babylonian name. And that's an interesting thing. You know, again, all of the ways that God had set into motion, all the preparations that had been made, so that all of these things could happen in the order that they happened. As we're gonna see, it becomes a very, very important thing that nobody knows that Mordecai is a Jew and that nobody knows that Queen Esther, who she's gonna become, hopefully most of you knew that that's what's gonna happen, but Queen Esther was not, a, nobody knew that she was a Jew. They didn't go by Jewish or Hebrew names. So Mordecai is, is a Babylonian name and so is Esther. Esther was not her given name. Her given name had been Hadassah. Hadassah which meant star or which actually meant myrtle it was like a a flower and Esther was the name that she had been given a Babylonian name that meant star and so Esther had not revealed her people or her family for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it and so Esther goes in into the custody of Haggai and she goes through and for whatever reason we don't know what was going on in Haggai's mind but God had already ordained that she was going to find favor in this man's eyes and so he was going to help her to win the heart of the king. And so she receives more beauty preparations besides her allowance, she's given seven choice maid servants and she was provided with one of the nicest places to stay in the king's palace. And so you go through all of these things and Esther's beauty just was amazing, okay? We'll just we'll leave it at that. I mean, she was just amazingly beautiful. And so you get to verse 12 and it says each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation, according to the regulations for the women for thus were the days of their preparation apportioned six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women and thus prepared each young woman went to the King and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the King's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. So you go through, and there's a couple of things in this section as well. The first one is that they they actually went in and it was a little bit different in a sense than the bachelor because they weren't trying to see who was going to marry the king they were going to see who was going to stay married to the king because they would all be married before that night that was part of what would happen when it says that they would go in to the king each one on their appointed night is that all of these women we don't know exactly how long it took how many women he went through during this time but what would happen is this woman would come one of the first things that would happen is that they would be married and then they would spend the evening together. He would go into her. He would know her sexually. And then in the morning, she would get up and she would go to a different place. She started in one side of the house, and then she would move to the other side of the house to where the concubines were kept. And the concubines were basically wives that that he just, I guess, was not compatible with, you would say. And they were just there for, for pleasure and to bring legitimate heirs into the world for him. And that's really all it was. And so there were many of these women that had been taken from their families, taken from their homes, some by force, some against their will, that went in, they had given up an entire year of their life to go through all of these preparations. Then they go in, they have one night with the king, and then the rest of their life, they never see the king again. You know, it wasn't a a miserable existence necessarily, but it wasn't a great thing. I'm sure that that was not something that that everyone was hoping or aspiring to be, was a concubine to the king. And so this would happen over and over and over again, and there were all of these one-night stands that this king had, and and he finally gets to to Esther, where we're going to see in a little bit. But the other thing that's really interesting about this is all the pictures that God has placed in this book. And so you go through, and, and there's 12 months that take place of this preparation. And the first six months have to do with myrrh. Now, for those of you that don't know a, a whole lot about myrrh, myrrh was one of the gifts that the wise men brought. Myrrh was also something that, that was considered to be an embalming fluid. This was something that, that the connotation was almost always death. And that's why it was such an interesting gift when the, the wise men brought that at the birth of Jesus because, it, yes, it was a costly thing, but it also symbolized death. And so the first six months was death and then the next six months was beauty. The first six months was death and the next six months were beauty. And that's a picture for us of what our life is supposed to be. Our life was death, right? Our life is now beauty, right? I I hope there's a few more amens than that. I'm not a big -er, amener, but I mean, you know, our life was death and our life is now beauty. Even in the midst of every trial, every struggle, every pain, every hindrance, every obstacle, every temptation, all of it, our life is still beauty. Our life is still beauty. One of the best things, total side note, but one of the best things that, that I hear when it's genuine and honest is, hey, how are you doing? You know what, things are tough, but I'm blessed. Things are tough, but I'm blessed. And I, I can't tell you how, how much that ministers to me I hope you guys don't just say it now just to, to do it, but, but it ministers to me so much when I can hear somebody honestly say that, especially when I have a little bit of an understanding of what they might be going through and just the difficulties in, and the trials in their life at that time. And when I, when I can say, hey, you know, I, I know things have been tough. How are you doing? How are you holding up? You know what? I'm blessed. You know what, I'm blessed. What, what a beautiful thing that is for me. And it's that picture that you have here, is that the first six months, it was death. It was putting to death all the things of their past. And then the next six months, we're preparing beauty. Preparing beauty, and that, that's really our life. You know, before Christ, everything was death. Now we have Christ, and we're not perfect. None of us are. But what, what's happening? We're being prepared. You know, in different places, particularly in the New Testament, what do you see? That we're being refined, purified. You know, there's songs that we sing about, refiner's fire, purify my heart. You know, that's what's taking place, is that there was so much death in our lives, and now there's still some cleaning up that has to take place, some beautifying that has to take place. But that's what God is doing to prepare us for that that final banquet for that final feast when he comes back for his, his church, for his children. But, so it's a beautiful picture there. But you go through, and, and again, it says at the end of verse 14 that if you were not chosen, you would not go into the king again unless the king delighted and called for them by name. Now in verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women and she obtained grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king made a great feast, the Feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces, and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king." So he was so blown away, not only by Esther's beauty outwardly, but also just by who she was by her character, by whatever, you know, her sense of humor. We don't know exactly what it was. But for whatever reason, just in his mind, Esther was a total package. And so he takes the, the crown. He's been searching for a queen. He finally feels that he's found her. And so he takes the crown from, that was previously on Vashti and he puts it on Esther. And then that wasn't enough. Then he declares it a national holiday. And he throws a feast just to celebrate how amazing Esther was. I mean, when, when the Holy Spirit goes through, and because and, and that's what we believe, that the Holy Spirit is divinely inspiring the writing of, of every book of the Bible, when the Holy Spirit comes and says that she was fair and beautiful to behold, and then the king comes and he throws a feast for her beauty, I mean, this was a beautiful, beautiful woman, and, and God had already prepared all of that. God was using that. This wasn't just something that, that God had just gifted for no reason. God was using even the beauty of this woman for his plan, for his purpose. And again, that goes back to watching God's hand at work. What are some of the things in our lives that it, just start to jog your mind a little bit? What are some of the, just the innate gifts and abilities that you've been given? And what's the purpose for that? What is the purpose for every gift that you've been given? There is one. I can promise you that. For every gift, for every talent, for every ability, every skill, for, for beauty, for brains, for brawn, everything in between. For finances, those that have been blessed with those abundantly, all of those things are not just random gifts that God gave out. Everything was given for a purpose. Everything was given to fit inside of God's plan. And are we consciously aware of that? We ought to be. We need to be consciously aware of what God wants to do with all the gifts that he's given to us. But then we get to verse 19, and it kind of starts to pick up steam a little bit. It says, when virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name, and when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And so you go through, and Mordecai is someone that's somewhat influential. Uh, obviously he wasn't high, high up, but he had a place or a position within the royal court. Because that's what that means when it says that Mordecai sat within the king's gate. You know, the, the phrasing there, something that, that I honestly had never fully picked up on until I was studying for tonight, is that the gate was symbolic as much as it was literal. The gate was where they actually made all the decisions. It was almost like a courtroom, like an assembly room, like a meeting place. All those things wrapped up in one. This is where they would go to make plans for a war. This is where they would go to make decisions on on who was going to die, who was going to live, to make decisions on government things. All of these types of things would take place at the gate. You know, and it, it makes some things in the New Testament so much more clear and even some of the things that we sing in in the songs that we do here when when we get to that the place in different songs where it talks about the gates of hell shall not prevail it's not talking about literally like there's gates that are gonna come you know opening on your head or something like what it's talking about is that the plans and the preparations of Satan are not going to overcome the power of God working in his children and I I think that that's such a great great picture and a great understanding of it, but, but to come back to this, that Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, that meant that he had some sort of an influential position in government. So he was a, over there and that as he was going through the day-to-day of his job, he became privy to this, this coup attempt that was going to happen by Dan and Teresh. And so he tells Esther and Esther goes and she tells the king in Mordecai's name This wasn't an anonymous tip. She went and she told the king, Mordecai has found this out. And Mordecai is the one that you should reward, in essence. But what ends up happening is nothing happens for Mordecai, but it was investigated, found out to be true, and so they hang these guys. And so that ends chapter 2. And then you get to chapter 3, where we're going to really, really ramp it up here to get through chapter 3. But in verse 1, it says, After these things... King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And now it happened, when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. And so, Mordecai was not rewarded. But Mordecai just continued doing what he was supposed to do. You know, we don't know a whole, whole lot about Mordecai aside from what we, what we read about here in Esther. But what we do see in Mordecai is a picture of the spirit, of doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing. Not for glory, not for honor, not for, for riches, not for anything other than because it was the right thing to do. And then you, you're now introduced to the, the last main character, if you will, of the book of Esher. And it's a man named Haman. And Haman becomes a picture for us of the flesh. It's this constant battle between the spirit and the flesh. And so Haman is this agagite. And he had advanced above everybody else in the kingdom. He, the king had set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded. So they were all literally supposed to bow down to him. This wasn't figurative. This wasn't just, you know, where we're supposed to tell him how great he is. They literally were to get down and bow their faces to the ground before him anytime that he would come in. That this was, he was supposed to be revered practically as second to only the king. And so... Multiple days happened. you know could have been weeks could have been months We don't know exactly how long but this happened over and over and over again And at first i'm sure that nobody really paid attention or nobody cared then it became a thing Then after it became a thing they talked to mordecai Then mordecai said look i'm not going to do it because i'm a jew and and i only have one god You know that's reading between the lines i'm a jew and i i don't serve him as a god so then that becomes a bigger thing. So now they take it to Haman, and Haman makes it an even bigger thing because now he doesn't just want to punish Mordecai, but he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, and now he wants to take revenge on all the Jews. Now, it's very, very possible, I would suggest to you, highly likely, that this is due in large part to Haman's family history. Because when you go back to the book of 1 Samuel and you go back through the story of King Saul and Samuel and and the relationship that they had. Samuel hearing from the Lord and then coming and telling Saul, look, this is what God has said for you to do. And then Saul, half obeying and half not, sometimes total disobedience. One of the things that had happened, and this was already after Moses had been told, hey, you're supposed to wipe out all the Amalekites. They didn't do that when they came into the land. Now they have a king, King Saul. King Saul goes into battle. God tells Saul through Samuel, you need to wipe them out completely. Just destroy them. Every man, woman, and child, even the animals. It's very clear in 1 Samuel. He says even the animals, just wipe them all out because of their wickedness. Saul goes and they win this great battle and Saul doesn't kill them. He doesn't kill all of them. In fact, he brings back the king of the Amalekites, and his name was Agag, or Agag. And where where did Haman come from? It says, Haman the Agagite from Amalek. God had told the children of Israel back when Moses was leading, he said, you guys need to wipe them out. They didn't listen. Then God tells them again through Samuel to Saul, you need to wipe them all out. They still don't listen and now look what's gonna happen now this man Haman becomes promoted and now he gets to this position where he has power and authority and he desires to wield it against the children of Israel again all of these pictures that we have in this book not just the literal things of what has happened but also figuratively of how this can apply to our lives and looking at at this particular man Haman as the flesh Looking at Mordecai as a spirit, how many times in our lives, after having become Christians, has God told us, I want you to stop this. I want you to eliminate this. Not just to tone it down. I want you to eliminate this from your life. Whatever it is. Some things very clearly, explicitly laid out in the Word of God. And other things that we would consider to be liberties for some, and yet God has told some of us, I don't want this for you and I need you to cut this out completely and we look at these things and we say Wow, well, God I've toned it down dramatically I've cut out 95% God I've cut out 99% you know this only happens once in a blue moon and yet that once in a blue moon comes back and it bites you so bad when it comes back And sometimes it leads to so many other things and so much pain and hurt and just all of the things that God was trying to spare us from. And we look at it sometimes from the wrong perspective, just like the children of Israel did. We don't don't know why exactly what was in Saul's heart. We can make some educated guesses, some inferences based on what, what Saul said when Samuel came and confronted him. You know, Saul's deal was, you know, there's still some good here, you know. Why throw the baby out with the bathwater? You know what? I mean, we can still salvage this. You know, I, I know that that you said to wipe everything out. I know that you said I need a clean slate. But you know what? I, I really enjoy some of this, and and there are parts of it that that aren't so bad. Maybe I could just dabble a little bit, you know. And as long as I keep it under control, I'll be okay. Whatever it is. And that's what Saul did. That's what Moses and the children of Israel had done previously. And now it's coming back to haunt them. And yet God saw all of that. And God had prepared a way of escape. Again, coming back to the picture of our lives. What does it say? What does Paul write in the New Testament? That with every temptation, God has prepared a way of escape. God has prepared a way of escape. So that even those things that God has already told us look just wipe it out completely out of your life he knows that there are some times that we don't listen and sometimes that we hold on to little bits or maybe large parts of it and yet even then God is still preparing multiple ways of escape so we might be able to bear that temptation and to overcome it that's the picture that we see through the book of Esther but coming back here you have this deal so now Haman has come into power he's come into this position and now he's decided he needs to do something to all of the children of Israel and so in verse seven in the first month which is the month of Nisan in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus they cast Pur that is the lot before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month which is the month of Adar and so what it what it says here is that they cast lots they're similar to throwing dice not exactly the same but but they they threw dice and they were trying to figure out what day they should wipe out the children of Israel. What day should we wipe out all the Jews? Such an interesting, strange way to do things. You know, to me, in my mind, why would you tell them? Like, if you were going to wipe them out, I, I'm not. I'm, thank God that I'm not in any kind of position of power to do stuff like that. But in my mind, if I ever was, and there was ever a need for that, I would not let them know I was coming. Like, to me, that just kind of. Like, that's stupid. But, but what they did is they decided they're going to cast lots. They're going to figure out what day is this going to happen so we can go ahead and announce it. Literally, that's what's about to happen. They're going to announce the date that they're going to wipe out the Jews. So in verse 8, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, "There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all of the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain, If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So he's going to pay for this to happen. Basically, there's a reward out for every Jew that you kill, and so he's going to pay per capita for all the Jews that are killed. And so the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman, the son of Hammedatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. And then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. To the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with a king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out hastened by the king's command and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel so the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Shushan was perplexed, literally in confusion. And so Haman comes up with this great idea he goes with his advisors, they cast the lots, they try to figure out when this should take place. They settle on a day, and then he goes to the king and he tells him this plan. He says, look, these people don't, they're just rebel rousers. They don't listen to you, they, they don't respect you, they don't honor you. They're the cause of all the problems. As you go through history, how familiar is that? Where well, the Jews become blamed time and time again in so many different places for all of the bad. This wasn't the first time. I mean, you go back, that's that's why they were in such bondage in Egypt. You know, they they started, when they started in Egypt, things were great. In fact, Joseph, a Jew, was the reason that Egypt was able to do most of the stuff that Egypt did. But at some point, Satan decided he was going to weasel his way into someone's heart. And he worked it so that they were all put under bondage. So that he could stick it to God. This happens time and time again, you know, it's happening here. You know, later on, you start to see it through the, the, the medieval ages, you know, during the, the time of the Crusades and a little bit before that. You see it through the Spanish Inquisition. You see it even nowadays. No, wait, what, what do we see in so many different things in, in the Middle East? You know, kill the Jews, death to the Jews, death to America for supporting the Jews. What did the Jews do? Like they're not even a big people. Like this is not a, a people that you should be fearing, except that they're the apple of God's eye, and that was enough for the enemy, and that was enough for the enemy then, and so he's decided. He comes up with a day. The king agrees, and so it's written down. It's sent out as law, the law of the Medes and the Persians, which means that it cannot be revoked, it cannot be altered, it cannot be changed. It is what it is, and so this law goes out, and so they sit down to drink. They sit down to, to drink and, and just to, to celebrate the existence of a new law. And as they're celebrating this, the people in the Capitol are in confusion. Don't understand where this came from. How did, you know, yesterday we were fine. Yesterday there wasn't a problem. And today there's, there's a warrant for my death. You know, there's a, a wanted not just dead or alive, but dead, and you can have everything that you can get from my possessions. So they're in confusion. And I know that that's such a weird place to wrap up tonight, but but that's all the time that we have, and, and we're going to do a three-part series. But again, just to see the beginnings of of how God is working, even in spite of all the things that the enemy is trying to do. And let that be an encouragement to you as we prepare to end tonight, is that that everything's happening for a reason in your life. You know, we we look at things and, and literally everything happens for a reason. You know, there is a reason that the Dodgers have not won a World Series since 1988. I wish I knew what that was and we could fix that so we could go back. But there's a reason for that. You know, and that's a simple, funny, isolated illustration. But it's true. There's a reason for that. There's a reason. There's a plan and a purpose for every single little event that happens in your life and in mine. We just need to be more consciously aware of that. There's a song that we sing a little bit more frequently now called Holy Spirit. And and it's really just not not saying anything about, you know, Holy Spirit, we're going to invoke you to do stuff. It's more like, Lord, help us to be more aware of your presence as you're doing the things that you're doing. Holy Spirit, let us be consciously aware, not, of, not only of what you're doing, but of what you desire to do through us and in us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.